What's up? I'm Will Fulton from Thrillist with some amazing podcast news. We just launched our very first podcast, Thrillist Best and the Rest. Every week, you can hear me and my amazingly talented colleagues talk about the best of the best in food, drink, travel, and entertainment. From the scariest movie of all time to the best hangover cure ever, listen to Thrillist Best and the Rest on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, you know, basically everywhere and anywhere you can find podcasts. Hi, Brian. Hi, Katie. And hello, listeners. You know, when you think about the news these days, Brian, you think about the two arenas that are dominating the headlines day in and day out, minute by minute. And those two arenas are probably politics and technology. And you know who understands tech better than almost anyone, including the two of us? Could it be our next guest, Kara Swisher? Wow, that's so convenient. It could, yes. This week's Wonder Woman, Kara Swisher, has been covering the industry for more than 20 years and is one of the most incisive and well-connected players in Silicon Valley. She's such a pit bull, Brian, but she's actually a very nice pit bull. (laughs) She started working a long time ago, actually at the Washington Post. She apparently chewed out an editor for an article that had been written about an event at Georgetown where she was a student. She ultimately got a job there. She went to the Wall Street Journal, and then she wrote a couple of books about AOL. She started this huge tech site. I think really she was on the front lines of tech journalism back in the day, Brian, when she started All Things D with her partner, Walt Mossberg. And she's an entrepreneur herself. She left the journal and All Things D to start Recode. And I liked this. A few years back, New York Magazine described Kara as Silicon Valley's most feared and well-liked journalist, which is quite a rare combo. That's for sure. A faux shizzle, as the kids might say, Brian. By the way, this is a crossover episode with Kara's podcast, Recode Decode, which means a version of this conversation will drop in Kara's podcast feed as well. But sadly for you, Brian, I'm flying solo this time and I'm missing you. Yeah, I don't want to get in the way of the two alpha women. So (laughs) you have your conversation. Keep me out of trouble, please. And uh, I'm going to be excited to listen. Thanks, Brian. Kara and I covered a lot of ground from how she got into the business of journalism in college using her trademark chutzpah. 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 We also talked about our respective careers, and we kicked things off by talking about Snapchat, of all things. Well, let me ask you about Snapchat, because I I want to not only talk to you about some of these big media companies and get Mm -hmm. the latest skinny on it, but I also want to talk about you, Kara. Okay, go ahead. But first, you know, so I know Evan Spiegel had a good quarter. I know that investors were a little heartened, but it seems like Instagram really took the wind out of his sales um, with Insta Stories, which I'm totally obsessed with, which is actually a sickness, which we'll we'll discuss later. But Mm -hmm. um, tell me what's going on with Snapchat. I know they did a redesign and people were upset about it. They did. What's the latest on that? Yeah, my son texted me. He's like, nobody likes this redesign. I mean, I think these companies redesign continually. They're always shifting and changing. And, you know, Facebook had 20 ones that people didn't like. So I think that, I think they just have to go with the way they want to do it and then hope for the best. And people will adjust. Yeah, I don't, I don't obsess on on redesigns unless they're just truly awful, like a new Coke, like new, you know what I mean? Something really doesn't work. Um, And people get it, people get used to the way they're using these things. So I don't over index on that. Um, That said, you know, they've got to be very careful because what happened is years ago, Facebook tried to copy, tried to buy Snapchat, first of all. Uh, Facebook is essentially their mortal, not their mortal enemy, their 
their killer, really. They're, they're trying to kill off Snapchat. Um, and they bought, they tried to buy Snapchat, and he put it off. He's a really interesting and visionary entrepreneur, uh, Evan Spiegel. I think every time I talk to him, I'm always fascinated. And that's, I can't say that with everybody I talk to. Yeah. Um, and he's he's got a big sense of where things are going. And, and they really do have an advantage in that it's not a twitchy medium at all, even though I don't use it that much and I, I do know how to use it. Um, but it's a much, it's a different, it's a communications meeting a lot more like WeChat in China. Uh-huh. Um, if you, if you ever use that one. I don't use um, WeChat. But Facebook had just decided to try to kill it. And so they tried something, I think it was called Poke or something like that, they had, which uh-huh. is just an awful name for a medium, um, based on the pokes on Facebook, essentially. Um, and that didn't work and didn't catch on. Um, and then they did it, used Instagram to do this, to do Instagram stories. Um, and I had Kevin uh, Sistrom, who was the founder of Instagram, on my podcast. And he, you know, most the people complained about it. They basically thought it was shoplifting or, or, or plagiarism, you know, in, in terms of how they borrowed what Snapchat was doing. And he said, look, we are doing exactly the same thing they're doing, but someone invented the car radio. Should we not make better car radios? Yeah. You know what I mean? That's That was his argument. We're making a better car radio and good for them for inventing the car radio, but too bad. And I think he was talking about the iterative nature of technologies that people build on, just like Jobs and Gates stole. They borrowed uh, the stuff from Xerox Park, the graphical user interface. It happens and happens again. And I think the problem for Snapchat is that Facebook can just roll eventually we'll get it right, just like Microsoft did a million times on a bunch of other tech companies. So what does that mean for Evan Spiegel and Snapchat? And how does Instagram compare? Well, he's so creative. So is Kevin Sistrom, by the way, um, who runs Instagram. Um, but I think it's hard. I think it's super hard to compete. I mean, the era of big tech companies now is really here. Um, I was talking to someone the other day, of a venture capitalist named Sarah Tavel, and she said it's really hard to do innovative companies anymore because, uh, and there will be innovative companies. It's not going to never stop. But the, the, the powerful companies, Apple, Google, uh, Facebook, um, Amazon, and, and, and Amazon are just, it just creates a, like a really difficult, and they're buying up companies and they're, they're being innovative and iterative themselves, and so it makes it super hard for smaller companies to break in. Facebook so. has gotten a lot of bad press lately, yes, obviously, they have. about Russia <laughs> they and about all yeah. kinds of things. So yeah. give me a, can you just catch me up yeah. on, sure. on what's happening at Facebook? And yeah. what do you think the outcome is going to be of a lot of this criticism? Well, you know, it's interesting. I was on—you don't follow Twitter that carefully, but I had a, pre, a, a, a debate with Facebook executives this weekend on Twitter. Oh, that um, must have been fun. I'm going to have to go back and <laughs> they check lost. that out. They lost. Uh, it's gone. They it's lost? Gone now, Katie. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, no, here's what they did is they're, they're very sensitive. First of all, they did a very slow roll about the uses of their platform by Russia. Um, in terms of initially last year, Mark Zuckerberg said there was no impact uh, whatsoever. Well, they I think, said that something. again, even recently, right? Yeah, that they it didn't do. Yes. Sway the election, which is yes. an unknowable thing to unknowable. conclude. Yes. Well, they want it. You know, they just keep saying it, and they maybe if it'll they be say true. It'll it works. Be so. It's like Trump, right? They just keep saying the crowds are bigger. The crowds are bigger. The crowds are bigger. Um, I think one of the things is they're very, they're, you know, they're very technical and mathematical people, and so they're being very accurate about certain things they're saying and and focusing in on them and missing the forest through the trees. You know, know what I mean? Isn't just, a lot of this stuff unquantifiable? Some of it is. Some of it is. But I think the overall issue is that they, they, they're, they're technically saying these ads were not run until these ads were. They weren't talking about the content on the platform. It's so much larger and bigger than they're discussing. But it, technically, their ads were bought at, at various times. And so they're 
their whole premise around this is that these ads didn't sway the election. And everyone else is like, well, there's an, an indictment by Robert Mueller that shows how they use primarily Facebook and Instagram to invade the system and take advantage of the system. And I liken it to, I mean, if you think about it, what if Russia had bought all the advertisements on a network or had run the content of a network during a presidential election and swayed it? Right. And they don't, they're not, they, they're not, they don't want to take responsibility for the fact that their platform was used by a malevolent power to create discord in our country. And that doesn't seem to bother them as much as technically our ads weren't bought into here. The platforms were used and abused because, you know, it's sort of like, why would you rob a bank? That's where the money is. Mm -hmm. That's where the people are. And so these platforms and Facebook being the biggest one have been much abused by malevolent powers. Well, and so that's what's going to happen? Is. Like when you think about Facebook, Karen, you think about say YouTube, yeah. which has also mm-hmm. had a lot of problems yeah. with I just pornography and inappropriate mm-hmm. content, and advertisers yep. are now shying away from that. I mean, yep. what what is the solution for these companies when they, you know, the genie's out of the bottle? Well, I just had a, a long interview with Susan Wojcicki at one of our events earlier this week, actually, who's the the CEO of right. YouTube, very thoughtful person. I just had her on an NBC, MSNBC show I did, too. I really which, like her. She's great. She's great. But, I mean, she, they're trying very hard because they know that these platforms are massive. I mean, the bill, they, I think it's a trillion hours a week or some, it's some enormous number that's being uploaded to YouTube and all these social media platforms. And so the ability of them to monitor it is, is enormous. They don't, there's obviously people can't do it. It's not, it's not feasible for people to do it. It's not scalable. And then secondly, the technology around AI and other machine learning in order to, to maybe control this better is still in its infancy and very problematic. And so they, they're trying to figure out how to maintain order, I guess, and at the same time, pretend they're not media companies. And so when I interview them, I do a lot of, well, are you a media? No, we're not. We're. A, I think Susan was like, we're a technology platform whose end result is media or something. It was some like really convoluted way. Why do you saying, think they're so reticent to be, to, you know, kind of admit? Because it requires responsibility. Because it requires responsibility. They're, they're, that means they're responsible. Like the New York Times cares if it's wrong, right? You know, whatever people think of the New York Times or whatever, liberal media, whatever, you know, working at any of these institutions, we care when we're wrong. We say we're wrong. We, like, correct, and it matters. There's a great deal of heaviness to the responsibility. Well, they're like, they they say they're the pipes. They're not the stuff that goes through it, right? Right. Even as they ruin the the business plans of every publisher, you know what I mean? So it's a really, they have to take, it's a different kind of media company, but they're a media company. But the minute they admit they're a media company, it means they have responsibility for what's on their platform. And and there's lots of laws why they don't want that to happen too. Like they don't, they want to just say they're a benign platform essentially. Do you think that's ever going to change? I mean, what, how do you see this all, you know? No, I I don't think that there will be any regulation of, uh, there's, there's always talk about it. And obviously I'm interviewing Cory Booker and others. The Democrats are suddenly, which were the friend of internet, are now turning on the internet, which right. is really interesting. Um, and so we'll see if the Democrats get in power, if there's more regulation. But so far, the U.S., and where most of this is taking place, has been toothless. Absolutely. Europe, on the other hand, there's a woman named Mar- Marguerite Vestager, who's mm-hmm. been very tough on all the big media companies in Europe. Who and is they, she? Uh, she's, a, she's a commissioner at the EU. Uh-huh. Uh, I think it's for competition. I forget her long title, but she's fantastic. I did a great podcast and interview with her. She's she's really an interesting force, and she's the one that's levied all these fines on these companies, and and really has the teeth to really 
bother them in these countries. And, and I think the European Union and Europe has a very different point of view on privacy, on abuse, on all kinds of things that, that is problematic for tech, U.S. tech companies. But in the U.S., you know, they roll over. Everybody rolls over. And obviously, our tweeter-in-chief, uh, our troll-in-chief, uh, Donald Trump, is using the medium to his own advantage. It's time to take a quick break. We'll have more of my conversation with Kara Swisher right after this. This season, Crate & Barrel wants you to play matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match with your gifts, that is. Good design becomes great design when it's in the hands of the right person. No more random gifts. These are matches just waiting to be made. The host you know with the most... There's a platter designed for them. Someone else on your list into entertaining? We've got glasses for that. There's even a set of spoons perfectly crafted for your next dinner date. Match them up with the right person and you've done something truly gifted. These gifts were designed with you and yours in mind. So find the ones that were made for each other. Crate and Barrel. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free plus twenty dollars off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout that's butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout and now back to my conversation with kara swisher you know, nobody knows this, but we like each other, Katie Kirk, don't we? We like. We yes, we do, Kara Swisher. I admire you. I like you. I think you're really smart, really funny, and really good at what you do. So speaking yeah. of that, how did you Thank get you. into this crazy business? I know you went to Georgetown. You started writing for your school yep. newspaper. You called the Washington Post to bitch them out about an article, which made yep. me laugh. Mm-hmm. Yep. Because that's, that's, you, <laughs> you thought that they did a big, bad job covering something at Georgetown. Yeah, they did. I did. I was mad at them for a piece on, if you, if I, I'll date myself, Roberto Dabuizon. Do you remember him from Nicaragua? The awful killer of women and children in Nicaragua. He he, he led the death squad. Oh, that's right. And so I thought it was irresponsible. They didn't do a good job covering him. So it was Well, kind you know of what I thought it. was really interesting about that story, Kara, though? Mm-hmm. You called, and I don't remember the editor to whom you uh, spoke. It's, uh, what's it, Larry Kramer. So Larry Kramer, which I really— thought was cool, said, Mm -hmm. come in and talk to me about it. Now, if he hadn't done that, do you think you would Mm -hmm. have gotten into journalism anyway? That's a good question. Yes, I was. I was already really writing a lot. Yes, 100%. I I think getting that break to go to the Washington Post was a big deal. Um, and it was a big deal to, because it, it, you know, you know how it elevates you when you go. Where did you start? You started out a, like a small. I started at ABC News in Washington, Washington getting uh, right. Frank Reynolds KL- ham sandwiches, making yeah. coffee and passing out Xeroxes at the yep. rundown. 
guess what I did? Delivered mail. Yeah. You know that. Yeah. And you know, what was really interesting about working from the beginning, because I was in the mailroom and I did night news aid and things like that at the Washington Post when I was younger, when I was in college, was that you understand the dynamics of politics of a newsroom much better from a lower rung. I don't know if you did. I learned that really talented people weren't quite as difficult as the less talented people. Yeah. I, like I don't that. know if I learned that, but I did learn through <laughs> osmosis, just kind yeah. of how a newsroom worked. Uh, I think it sort of feeds your curiosity. You watch people who you admire, who you think mm-hmm. are good, who are tough. Um, yep. And and um, I also think it makes you think, hey, if they can do it, I can do it because they're not that great. Right. Right, exactly. And I think I took, I think you probably did the same thing. I took every opportunity I got. Every time someone handed me a chance, I took it. And like, oh, someone go to the Smithsonian to write about this dumb, like, rock collection story. And I just said, I'll do it. You know what I mean? I, I'll do it was my— Definitely. You know, right. Say yes to everything. Everything. And I think yeah. that is a really important, you know, and a valuable piece of advice for people starting out. Don't you, Kara? Yeah, I do. Absolutely. I think one of the things, it was more than yes. I just, I didn't just say yes. I just, I literally would do whatever it yeah. took, kind of thing. And I think I, you know, one of the things I was talking to someone the other day, they were like, what do you regret? And I'm like, I didn't really travel. I went right to work. Like I worked, I think you probably did the same thing is I didn't like take time off. I didn't like go and find myself in, you know, Thailand or I know. Well, like for that. me, work is like oxygen. You yes, know, I, I have agreed. to work. I and And I know you feel the same way. And I'm wondering, I didn't realize, I feel like I know a lot about you, but I, I don't mm-hmm. think I knew that your dad died when you were yes. just five years old. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and he had a cerebral hemorrhage. And yeah, you, you know, it, it, yeah. And he was how old, Kara? 34. 34 years old, which is so yeah. heartbreaking. And, yeah, you know, was. that was the age Ellie was when Jay died, my, mm-hmm. my late husband. And do you remember your dad? You know, it's funny. I do in bits and pieces. And I don't know how much she does. You should, you know, a lot of people who's uh, parents died at a young age or are, are something called highly functional because they become like half their life goes away, really, if you think about it. If you're five, you don't have much reference to other friends and family and things like you reference your parents pretty much. And so you get highly functional because the worst thing in the world happened to you and you survived. And I think a lot of people, kids whose parents died at a young age, but they, they just move faster because they realize, you know, the ephemerality of life. And then at the same time, um, they can deal with things. Things don't bother them that much. Like in, in both negative and positive, you want to be bothered by certain things in life, but you definitely roll on through. Is your mom uh, still living? Yes, she is. Oh, yeah. She's, do you, uh, do you she's find you worry City about right her a lot? Because the one thing no. that I've noticed, and I had talked with Carrie, my younger daughter, about this because Ellie was at such a formative age. Carrie was just two, and Ellie had just turned, I guess, was six, had turned Mm -hmm. six. And she gets a lot of anxiety about me because Uh. I think she does, you know, I'm her only parent. And do you feel that way about your mom? Uh, no, I don't. Oh, sorry. My mom drives I me nuts. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Just I'm sorry no, Mrs. we're an Italian family, so no, I do not worry about it. Sometimes, like she, she loves her Fox News. Let me just say, so that's been a great. Time oh, interesting. Do you guys years. not yeah. talk about politics at the oh, Thanksgiving my God, table? She never shuts. Up. Oh, I had to throw out a Thanksgiving once because she voted for Rink Santorum, but that's a long story. <laughs> Uh, she she said she wouldn't because he was for anti-gay uh, stuff, and I said you can't vote for him and and continue to have Thanksgiving. Where with does me. she so, live? In New York City and she, everywhere. She's in Mexico City right now, I think. Interesting. She travels. That's she's interesting. Quite a, she's like an anti-mame kind of person. Uh, yeah, Fox has, has poisoned her brain completely. Um, but uh, but she's okay. She's pretty funny. Um, you'd yeah. like her. You'd like her, Katie. She's fun. She's oh, fun yeah. Lady. She sounds fun. We'll have to she's take her to lunch fun. or something and just 
not talk about politics too oh, much. Oh, she, but she doesn't like Trump so much. But she, you know, she likes Fox News. Oddly, she does. She can't stand Trump. So listen, um, after, wait, I just want to do a little more of your career stuff. Yes, after, yeah. So after the Washington Post, um, I mean, you are such a force, Kara, and you're sort of the most well-liked and feared. I've read that mm-hmm. a million places, yeah, journalists yeah. covering in Silicon Valley. And and how did you get so interested in covering technology? In tech, I covered Steve Case from AOL. Um, I, I was here in Washington at the Washington Post, and I covered the internet early, early on um, when there was AT&T Interchange and all this other stuff. And so I was super struck by the internet from a very early age. Uh, I had the Washington Post had a phone I used, a big old heavy one. It was in a suitcase. Um, I was <laughs> I was riveted to the idea that there was going to be a mobile phone I for some reason. Did you have one of those like Maxwell Smart car phones I, that looked like a shoebox? I was not in my car, but I, it was a suitcase that I brought in my car that the Post had. And then I bought one of the, you know, and then I had one of the other phones that looked like those big ones. And I had, I've had early, I've had phones forever. I one time was on a vacation with someone I was going out with, and I was in the middle of the bay in Provincetown. It was low tide, and so I could walk out pretty far. And I was like, it works out here. And I think they broke up with me right then. Really? Like, like, yeah, no, I just went on a vacation in Mexico uh, with uh, Nelly, and uh, it was supposed to be without any internet or anything else. And of course, I managed to find a cellular connection somewhere. You, you man- managed to find the one square I, foot where your well, phone I did hike up, would come in. I did hike up the giant hill to get there, but what, uh, whatever, it's details. Well, do you worry, Dami, do you worry about tech addiction? Because that's something that actually I am worried about, not only for myself, but for people in general, because, you know, I see my daughters, one of the hours I'm doing for Nat Geo, shameless plug, Mm -hmm. is talking about is technology making us lose our humanity? Because it really is changing, dramatically changing the nature nature of our relationships. And one thing I heard, Kara, from an internet expert, you know, addiction expert, out in California, I interviewed Larry Rosen. He said that mm-hmm. kids are actually developing plaque in their brain oh. because phones and screen time is actually interrupting the melatonin in their brain and increasing wow. cortisol. And they're very, very worried about early dementia among yeah. these addicted kids, which was wow. enough to freak me out. Oh, my goodness. What, yeah. Katie, that's terrible. I, I'm I sorry agree. to break I the think, news to you, think, but— So I'm completely demented right now then. Um, <laughs> I think, uh, you know, it's not to joke about it. Uh, I agree. I think it's going to be a big topic this year. I think, uh, you know, people talk about this, and again, this is the next wave of hit this hits that companies like Facebook Definitely. And, and, um, and, there, and you hear more more people making noise. One of the guys I interviewed, Tristan, Tristan. Harris, who I just yeah, think Tristan. is, I love him, Kara. He's yeah. such a remarkable young man. Yeah. He's 33 yeah. years old. He quit Google, right? Because he said, mm-hmm. was it Google or? Google. Yeah. He was he, at Google. Because yeah. he felt like these tech companies are manipulating us so much. Yeah. And they're making us addicted by, and I, I well, see it in my own life. they're also not taking, same theme, not taking responsibility for what they're doing. And so one of the things, which, you know, people are liking them. I mean, media companies are liking them to cigarette companies. I think that's probably taking it slightly too far. But there is, uh, there, there is a question of how much warning people should have, how much knowing about it, how much science needs to happen. That's one of the reasons I wanted to do this hour. You know, we're operating and it's like minute by minute. And nobody, I think, in the media culture takes a step back and says, wait a second, let's take a look at some of these big issues. Because I think this is such an incredibly transformational time in almost every arena, but nobody is sort of 
debating it or talking well, about it, it. it. They don't want to. These internet companies don't want to do that because I think what they've been doing is growing at a breakneck speed. And one of the things I started to do last year, right, when they went to visit Trump, you remember they all trooped up to Trump Tower and right. uh, and didn't say anything about immigration. And I had a, I wrote one of these scoldy, scoldy columns about it, talking about how dare you do this without discussing immigration. This guy has been so anti-immigrant, you know, which has been the, the fuel for Silicon Valley, essentially, immigrants. Right. All the major companies founded by immigrants, Elon Musk, Sergey Brin, Satya Nadella, uh, Steve Jobs' parents, were, father was an immigrant. Um, and so I, in each of them, you know, I, Susan Wojcicki's parents are from, an, uh, father is from right. the country. Um, so I was, I was really angry at them for doing that by walking up there. And they were all like, oh, you know, we'll get to it. He's not, he doesn't mean what he says. I'm like, he means what he says, you know, around this topic, because he said it so many times. It was one of his basic promises to his constituency. And so I think what they want to do is act as if they are the saviors of humanity and not take the responsibility for what their inventions create. Um, and that and tech addiction is just one of the many. And I think, you know, you at some point you do, like, I, I, get, I get a lot of pushback this past year. of like, you're such a scold. And I'm like, no, you need to grow up and start to understand not just tech addiction, but job displacement. Like, what's going to happen around AI and automation? Well, let's, can we talk about that, too? Because sure. that's yeah. something that, that yeah. I uh, address in this hour. 38% mm-hmm. of jobs are susceptible to automation, All eliminating them. them by the early 2030s. Right. I know you did a town hall series mm-hmm. uh, with the MSNBC future. about that and with jobs mm-hmm. in the future. This is something that I've been really interested in because, sure. you know, it's it, jo- these jobs are not being lost to globalization. They're being lost to automation and robotics. And, and so, AI. so I mean, it's a huge dilemma, and I think it's actually part of what's feeding white working class frustration. Another hour I'm doing on that, Gio. <laughs> so what what is the solution here? I mean— I, I don't know, because it, you know, with, I, I got the inspiration from doing that series on MSC from Mark Andreessen, and I had, who've been arguing for decades now. He and I argue about all kinds of things. But one of the things he was talking about was that it's like the farming to manufacturing it transition. It definitely and, is. And look—except— except, that that happened over 70-some years, and it was a very—and it was huge political uprising because of it. And now in this age of social media and also constant and, and repeated uh, media everywhere and people's feeling, uh, you know, so apart from each other and so partisan, it's a it's a powder keg as far as I can t- You know, I mean, you really create a situation. I agree. You know, Steve Case has talked about this. J.D. Vance, his great book, Hillbilly Elegy. Uh, yeah. There is a massive transition about to happen around jobs that people are not paying attention to. And I don't want to be one Williams of those Luddites. also wrote a great book. Yeah. Yeah. based on a Harvard Business Review mm-hmm. article called just called White Working Class, which right. talks a lot about class cluelessness and cultural condescension but and all this stuff white. I highly recommend. It's not just white. It's like, the, what, what, who is thinking of it? That's I, I don't want to like say, okay, there's not going to be better jobs in the future. There, but what, what are we going to do about it? One of the things that um, Nellie just interviewed Robert Reich, who was the former labor secretary. And one of the things he said in this interview, they did a New York Times thing on AI. It was a, an event. And one of the things that I thought was the best quote that came out of it was you were either this is universal she was asking about universal basic income which is you pay people essentially right. when jobs get lost and it's you know a lot of it's very controversial it feels like communism a little bit you know what I mean it's questionable but it's one of the ideas of how to deal with this joblessness and uh, and eventual joblessness um he said, you either are going to pay pay then these numbers to pay people to not work essentially or you're going right. to pay to bulletproof your Tesla 
Like, and I was like, oh, wow, that's because people are going to, you're going to create this sort of Brazil-like situation where there's very poor and very rich. Um, and, and that's going to be, we've got to really, my question is who's thinking about it? Who among our, is it the tech companies? Whose responsibility is it? The tech companies, is it government? Is it citizens? I think is it's, it, yeah, I think it's all right. of the above, but you're right. It's very frustrating that people are just kind of have their head in the sands about, uh, sand about this. Zoe Baird is working very she hard is. on this thing called Skillful, and she's working with Governor Hickenlooper in Colorado to try to come up with a way to retrain and, uh, you know, especially displaced workers. But I think our whole education system needs right. to be reevaluated. I went to Johnstown, Pennsylvania, where there mm-hmm. 50% of the high school students are involved in vocational training. And right. I just think that this, we just have to really kind of, everybody has to put their they're thinking caps on. And where on. it's going. And where it's going. Because some of these jobs, you don't even, I mean, some of the jobs, there was a great story in the New York Times recently about Sweden. Like they were doing, uh, robots are doing mining, essentially. Right. Uh, and all kinds of, like, why should people, like this whole thing about Kentucky going back to coal mining, people probably shouldn't coal mine. Like this, it's very dangerous. It's, you know, cer- there's certain jobs, rote jobs that maybe people shouldn't do anymore. Right. And it wasn't good for people in the first place. So why just have them there when robots can do it better? But I and think so- what's hard, Kara, is, you know, th- these are generational, traditional yes. jobs that have been yes. passed on. It is part of certain people's DNA. So we right. have to rethink education, rethink all the different possibilities and how from the get-go, from pre-K on, we start orienting people toward the jobs of the future. Thank Except, you. Who knows? Who knows? Thank you. Thank you, <laughs> President uh, Kirk. Um, it, but, but, but the thing is, uh, are we can't, they can't even decide in lunch. They can't pass a Dreamers Act. This is like, for example, the Dreamers Act thing is just driving me crazy because it's literally an advertisement to the rest of the world that we don't like innovation. We don't like innovative people. We don't like people who work harder. It, it is such a message to the rest of the world, which, again, we have the, the technology and innovation in this country has been fueled by immigrants. No matter how you slice it, people coming in, fresh ideas, fresh thinking, and and the and, and also and, and, hardworking. To, you know, exactly the people. Exactly. You know, the scrappy people who have something to prove. Who I mean, those are the people who change the world, not people who you know, pardon the expression, are born with the silver spoon in their mouth. Right, and the problem is, I think one of the things you know, we can get into diversity in the next section. But I do need to talk to you about Yahoo. I need to okay, understand Okay, well, we'll how talk that about went. that. But I also want second, to talk to you about, like, how you're able to get so many people to talk to you. All right. And we'll how, do that you, the next how you stay in the business without pissing so many people off. They never talk to you again. Well, I'm about to piss everyone off. I think at the end of my career is going to be one big disaster. Really? But, um, no, no. But you're just going to go out like you're I'm just going to go like, just... like a Roman candle, Katie. I'm going out <laughs> big and ugly. Um, so let's finish up this section. One of the things I think is what I think about when I think about these ideas around not accepting people in this country and, and around and keeping it in op- open borders and things like that in order to do this um, is that there is a, like, including around the issues of diversity, too, like not bringing, not thinking bigger. There is a, I have this vision in my head of a small girl in Afghanistan who knows how to solve cancer. It's in her brain, like who is going to be the one that does it, who will never get there because of all kinds of issues, either immigration or discrimination or whatever. There, there are, we don't know who hasn't been able to invent things because of the 
the, the barriers we put in people's way that we could remove and create a better place. And I know it sounds like sort of pie in the sky, but the more barriers we put in front of people to be innovative, the less humanity benefits. It's I just, agree with you 100%. You know? And I and do so, think the internet is, is, is helping remove some of those barriers in terms of giving people a pathway to education and exposing them to, you know, ideas that they'd never be exposed to otherwise. Right. Well, we're going to talk about that more because you talked to James Damore and others for your one of your uh, yeah. pieces that I was talking on. Yahoo. Yeah. Katie, what happened? Well, I think it was a really interesting experience. I think that, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think the, the real issue is many of these tech companies, I mean, it was what we were talking about earlier. They are not media companies. They do not care right. deeply about stories, about content, about true connection. I think they care about widgets and gadgets and how to d- and delivery systems. But they aren't really super mm-hmm. interested in, you know, the the vegetable soup that's running through the pipes. Right. And um and I think for me it was just a bit of a culture clash. I think that the problems, the challenges of making sure people got good content was just not high on their priority list. Right. So what did you, what, when you went in, you were thinking what? You had been at well, these networks, thought, you had left you know, ABC, I thought, right? I, I, yeah, I saw the world changing. I saw mm-hmm. people uh, consuming information. I saw this pipeline, whether, you know, direct disinformation disintermediation or, <laughs> you know, using these pipes to reach people as something that was incredibly promising. And I thought, Yahoo, I said to Marissa Meyer, I said, do you want to be known as the company that serves up stories about the boy who lived on ramen noodles for 13 Mm -hmm. years? Or do you want to kind of have really important, interesting, substantive interviews? Do you want to educate and enlighten people? Do you want to raise the bar? And, you know, it doesn't mean you can't have the ramen noodle story, but you could do maybe a high-low thing like they do in fashion. You know, you wear a sweater Mm -hmm. from Bergdorf's and jeans from J. Crew, whatever. So she seemed to be open, but I don't think she was ever sort of understood the commitment that would take. And I just think right. she had a lot of other things on her plate, in fairness. And so, it, it you know, I wouldn't but say you were it was a huge un- unhappy profile, marriage, high. but it was certainly not very fulfilling for me because right. I had all this great content. I was getting big interviews, and you it were, was sort of like yeah. a tree falling in the forest. Because no one, because they didn't put it on the front page. Well, they didn't put it on the front page or they didn't really know how to, I mean, even now they really don't have very good distributions, you know, they don't, they didn't really know how to market things properly. They didn't know how to take quality and make it scalable. And at one point you were paying for Facebook ads, is that correct? Or to get your stuff out there? I did bring someone in. I wasn't, no, 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 I wasn't paying. I did bring someone in who was really an expert on micro-targeting. Because, right. you know, I would say to him, how can how can my stuff get seen more? And I right. would, you know, say to the Yahoo folks, can we please do a newsletter? I'll, I'll totally push out everybody's content. Mm-hmm. I'll make sure everyone sees Matt Buy's column. Or I'll make sure that people see Josie's fashion thing. You know, people— Yeah, they hired you a need lot to of be, people. Yeah, they hired some big names, and yet, you know, they were in the witness protection program. So I said, <laughs> let me help you help them, help us, help everybody. Yeah. But yeah. they just, I don't know, maybe it's because they were kind of at that that time and are a legacy tech company mm-hmm. that they had kind of no, lost it's an their attitude. mojo to innovate, I think, in they, a way. No, but, you know, it's an, it's an attitude throughout tech. They, the content doesn't matter. I, I just, right. They, 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 they have they talk no respect about it. for content. It's, it's not even no respect. It's 
It's as if it's Disdain. anything. Dis- not even that. It's really weird. It's like, oh, it's just another thing they're pushing through the system, essentially. But it I doesn't think that's, matter. That's why, like, I think the secret sauce are people who are technologically savvy, but also respect and care about storytelling. And mm-hmm. the company that I think combines those two things mm-hmm. is going to be is going to win the day. And I haven't mm-hmm. really found it yet. Have you? Well, I guess no, Fox, in I, a way. Vox does. We, we try to, but we don't own the pipes. You know what I mean? Right. I, I do think sometimes when I talk to Evan Spiegel, I do think, well, at least he gets the concepts around it. Like the idea that you differentiate or you curate. And I think that's the that's the question is the curation. And I think that doesn't matter. I think one of the things that I found fascinating from your tenure at Yahoo, besides all the other things I was writing about there, um, was the they they made this enormously high profile hire, and you are you, you know it was it was a big giant hire that they made, and then they literally hit you <laughs> anywhere they could. That was put so you, weird, can, right? It was. And, I, was I mean, like, just, and then as, get just these for, as a business proposition, it's right. not like I'm all that in a bag of chips. But like, right. if you are going to invest in somebody like me who has. Mm-hmm a quote-unquote brand, which I hate that, Mm -hmm. but, you know, who is recognizable and has a connection with people, why not leverage that? It was bizarre. I don't think they meant it in the first place. I think it was just— No, no, no. I think they never intended to do it, but it wasn't—it sounded good. It was like a good press release, but it was sort of— They they hired a lot of people, so it was more than a press release. It was something—you know what I mean? Like, that was what was interesting. The whole— I just was, it was sort of a sidelight, and I don't think it was even as cynical as just a press release. I think they thought they wanted no, it. No, I think you're really right. I think they just didn't understand what it required. And I would try to say, hey, let me bring this person in to run media who mm-hmm. really gets it. And, you know, and they they just, I don't know. It was it was strange. So you left because why? Because it, then it had changed. Marissa was Because was I just didn't out. see them shifting their attitudes. And, you know, at some point— even under I, oath, oath. I just had interviewed Tim Armstrong. I liked him. I think he's great. I I told him I thought the new name of the company should be Rise R I Z E because it's sort mm-hmm. of like Verizon and it's yeah, aspirational yeah. Oh, and I like positive. That. Katie Couric, but, that's a great um, name. You know, I think they paid a lot of money to come up with oath, whatever. But anyway, so I think that you know, I I think these companies are are maybe they'll wake up and smell the the coffee, but I think they're just very lumbering and slow. And so at some point, ironically, right, but at some point you want to do quality work and make sure that someone values what you do and make sure that they hopefully want to get it out into the world, which is increasingly fragmented, by the way. Yeah, two questions, though. Netflix just paid Ryan Murphy. Uh, right, Shonda Rhimes, million dollars. Enormous, you know, and then Shonda Rhimes has a similar I deal. Know. Um, obviously, Apple is just invested in a Reese Witherspoon thing that's very expensive. Um, you know, ba- eventually, Based on morning television. Right, exactly. It's all about you. <laughs> it's going to be a case not, not about me, I don't think. Um, but well, you could consult, for sure. You seem to know a t- thing or two about that. Um, when you uh, when you look at all that though, they are sp- they are moving rather heavily. They are, into that you space. know. I think right now, I I think that they are not super jazzed about moving into a more news space. Mm-hmm. But maybe ultimately they will be. But right now, I think they're really focused on scripted content and right. you know super kind of impactful, buzzy stuff. And you mm-hmm. know, I think in a news landscape where there is so much content everywhere, I don't know about you, Kara, but I can. Mm-hmm. I mean, I read so many articles on my phone, and I'm like, yeah. where did I yeah. read that? What was that? Right. How did I n- right. know that? And it's disconnected um, it, from it, the it, brand. It feels very confusing. But but you're right. I think. 
I think the landscape is continually changing and iterating, as they say. And, uh, you know, it will be interesting to see. But the the most important thing is, you know, how are we going to keep people informed and engaged in the world Mm -hmm. around them? I do think, you know, from what I said earlier, that a lot of young people, Gen Z, whatever you call it, millennials, really do are engaged, but we have to get, continue to think about how we'll continue to keep people engaged, you know? Right. Because it's you, so important to a democracy. I know. What would you do right now if you were young? I mean, you already— If like, I were young, things, Let yeah. me just say, everybody, Katie Kirk is the hardest woman, working woman, and we were having dinner, and literally she was getting on a—you were getting on a knife. Like, where were you going? You were going to, like, Alabama or somewhere. We're like, Katie Kirk can rest. I know. Was, <laughs> I just love to work. I don't know why. My husband thinks I'm insane. Yeah. He, I, um, I, I, you know, I work hard, and I think you're insane. Like, I know. I have to figure out—I do feel like I have to find a better balance— but what would I do if I were starting out in the business? I don't know, now? but I, I I just felt like like at one point I'm like you you did that Sarah Palin interview. You can retire now. <laughs> I know, but don't. I mean, I like to be engaged in the world. No, I like I get to it. be talking so what to would interesting you do, people. Well, and, I don't know you saying. What would you do if you're young? What would you? What are you interested in now? And interested in now? Yeah. What do you? I mean, because look, broadcast is sort of shifting so dramatically, and and you know, you tried the Yahoo thing, although it doesn't mean that that didn't work. But so are you? Where would you? Where where are you looked at, or where would you go? I mean, I think that I'd like to try something more entrepreneurial mm-hmm. because I think there's never been a better time. I mean, if you talk about disintermediation, I mean, I've I do a lot on Instagram because. I feel a real connection with people who follow me on Instagram. It feels Mm -hmm. a little less kind of uh, sort of cosmic than Twitter. I feel it's more community-based. And I think that that's a really interesting outlet to experiment in and try Hmm. different things. And, you know, I'd like to do something that really, you know, at this point in my career shines a light on other young, up-and-coming, especially female journalists, diverse journalists, people who represent all different points of view, because the one thing we've seen, Kara, so clearly is certainly in broadcast that it is still a male bastion. It's still all the decision makers are are primarily white men. Mm -hmm. And we have to start changing that. And how do you change it? Well, you give women an opportunity and experience and a, a chance to shine. How did you take, I mean, the, the, obviously media has been the focus of a lot of the Me Too stuff more than any. I was talking about this the other day. There's there's a lot of it in tech, but it really has been focused on media and including places you've worked. I mean, yes. how do you look at when you when you see that happening? Did you just become inert to it? Like, oh, this is the way it is? I mean, or, I have to say personally, I did not deal with a lot of that. I don't know whether, uh, you know, I'm just imminently inharassable. <laughs> But, you know, I'm irascible, not harassable. But, you know, I was very lucky. I, you know, every now and then, um, you know, someone would make a comment or it would be a little fratty. But I would just, I think I'm kind of like you. I would roll my eyes or give it right back. And so I think culturally, it's just been such a shift in what is acceptable and what is unacceptable. But having said that, you know, I've been— the beneficiary of having a pretty powerful job. And I would try to set the right tone in a work environment. Having said that, I think I'm sure it was, you know, jocularity bordered on too much kind of uh, 
you know, boy's humor, but— Yeah, I think I think about what I, did I allow that I shouldn't have Yeah, well, you know, I, and, and I, don't, I don't really feel that way. I think that some people have said, well, how did you not know what was going on? I think mm-hmm. there was also this feeling of privacy, you know, and mm-hmm. people do things, and you're not monitoring behavior uh, in right. people's spare time. You don't know about it. And so I think that— you know, I, I feel t- I have a totally clear and clean conscience mm-hmm. about the way I comported myself and, you know, any responsibility that I bear for people's bad behavior. Yeah, it's hard because I think what's, what happens is one of the things I've noticed, at least in Silicon Valley and talking to people, is that people let things go. Like, you know, I think about like how 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 you just you become again a nerd to it like you you get you get this stuff all the time and then you live in the environment and, and then some don't. of it is so subtle Kara you Absolute, know some of they're, it they're I think microaggressions that one of the things so that hasn't that. gotten a lot of attention is sort of very subtle sexism that's that's marginalizing and dismissive and undervalues People's uh, accomplishments and intelligence and and um, ability to contribute, and it's it's this very subtle thing that you can't go to necessarily HR about it, but mm-hmm. you feel it intensely. And I have well, experienced that. Yeah, it's really interesting. When I I just finished the Tina Brown um, book about her tenure at Vanity Fair, which I thought was fantastic. Yeah, I haven't and read it yet. And one of the yet, things, oh, you got to read it. It's hysterical. It's hysterical and beautifully written and very funny and very raw. She's but what so was inter- brilliant. Brilliant. But I was just thinking, people have a vision of her that's really not very nice, like tough, you know, ball busting lady editor kind I, of I, thing. I, I'm like, I'm so over that. I am so exactly. over and that. And I was, re- I was like, she. She changed magazines and two, not one, but two. And she had some like rockier times at Daily Beast and talk and stuff like that. But her accomplishments were massive when you start to realize it, the impact on magazines. Oh, definitely. And the, the kind of image she has is so like everyone, any man who did that, I just was, it made me furious when I was reading. I was thinking, this person still has sort of a a, a reputation among some, who, which is like, oh, what a, what a tough bitch she is, that kind of thing. And I'm like, Whoa! Wait! Wait a minute. She did a lot, and why is she? Why is that her image? Well, you know, you know I, think, I think that's why it's so important to have women in leadership positions. When I anchored the CBS Evening News, like I would call writers out and say, "Why are you describing Hillary Clinton that way? Would you describe a male candidate that way? Right? Or just why can't we do a story on X, Y, and Z? Things that that." my male counterparts would never in a million years imagine. and But so, why should it be you that does it? That's the thing. Why does it have to be someone, a woman? I was just, I did the same thing when I interviewed Hillary Clinton last year at Code. Um, so one of the anchors I was telling you is like, she was strident. And I'm like, what, what word did you just use? And this was on the air. And they're like, I said strident is a word you only use for hysterical it's women. It's true. And how about and I was shrill? Like, she was tough how about that being shrill. struck, yeah. you know, taken yeah. out of our vocabulary? Do you ever, hey, and how about perky? You know, like I felt- <laughs> I was called perky, yeah, and I am very outgoing, and I'm friendly, and I'm very, like, I'm very upbeat. But, you know, are men ever called perky? No, I feel yeah. like it's a demeaning, marginalizing description of somebody, and well, it, I don't also, like when it. you shifted, like, I think you did shift, though, in your, you were not, you were a much more complex person than perky Well, that's Katie. the thing, I think you know that what I mean? people, people don't. People didn't like it. Well, people, people don't like 
they don't want to acknowledge people are multidimensional. They want to, com- right. you know, put them in a box and say they're X, Y, and Z. And, you know, I think that nuance has been lost in our current discourse and hasn't really existed for a very long time. And or it's the, just very easy to stereotype people. Yeah, or else you—I I think about you a lot. I remember you, when we were at Vanity Fair and you yelled, I was talking about your salary, and I was thrilled that you got the big salary you did at Yahoo. Someone was sort of saying, oh, that's a lot of money. I'm like, who cares? You got the money. Like, that can, And you yelled from the audience, that's right, Swisher, or something like that. <laughs> like, but in this sort of growl, and it was fantastic. And everyone was like, is that Katie Couric? And I was like, yes, that is Katie Couric. Like, I she know, wants well, you know, money. I think women especially, I mean, think about it. Morning television, you have to be nice. And, you know, I think uh, luckily I am, I'm, I, I think of myself as a nice person, but you have <laughs> to fulfill these expectations and roles. And, you know, it's very hard to navigate as a woman this kind of, you know, being tough but not too tough, you know, being mm-hmm. challenging but not too challenging, not having an opinion, being, you know, being palatable and pleasant in the morning. You know, you have to be like the breakfast smoothie. And so it's, right. <laughs> it's hard. It's really hard. I like the breakfast smoothie. I think I stole that from What's Tom Brokaw, who described yeah. Matt as that once. Yeah, what? Not anymore. Um, uh, what smoothie would you be? Like, oh my goodness, you'd be an interesting smoothie. But it's true. But it's it's. I think that that's what's interesting is that if you don't fulfill their expectations of you. Well, I and think there's so much. You know, one of the hours I'm doing for Natchi, and again, I'm not. I, I've been mm-hmm. thinking no, about ahead, all these, and do. the only reason no. I bring it up please is because you're in this hour, and you're fantastic. Yeah. It's about gender inequality in Hollywood and Silicon Valley. And and I talked to a woman at Harvard who studies implicit bias. And we, mm-hmm. you and I talked about this, Kara. You know, companies that implicit. consider themselves a meritocracy are the least meritocratic of anyone mm-hmm. because they don't acknowledge their innate biases. And I think we are so programmed to see men and women in a certain way that is actually, you know, reinforced by all the messaging we get in commercials mm-hmm. and the objectification of women, hypersexualization of women. I had to think, you know, when this whole Me Too movement was exploding, the Victoria's mm-hmm. Secrets fashion show was on CBS. And I was like, no wonder women are confused. No wonder everybody is confused. Right, right. But then you have the the the, the backlash, and you talked about you 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 interviewed James Damore for that, right? Or right. Others. You went to one of his party. You told me I'm going to his party. I'm I like, went to a, a cookout. Yeah, I was like, they were good serving time. sausages. Uh, were they? Of course they were. There's sausages everywhere where I work, Katie. Um, <laughs> everywhere I go, sausage sausage fest. Is it was what, interesting. That's the name. It was interesting. That's the name. <laughs> that was the name of my memoir, is Sausage Fest. Um, but it, it's true. I always. It's, it's so true. Um, but what was interesting about when you were talking about that was that I'm glad that you were open to hearing them because one of the things in Silicon Valley right now, you know, Peter Thiel has to move because he can't be conservative. Right. Which, oh, right. come on. Come on. Come on. What, like, tell, least, yeah, let's discuss that. What up with All right, that? we only have a few minutes. Oh, come on. Just please. I just don't even know what to say. I, this is a person who is a, a victimizer that acts like a victim. Typical. You know what I mean? Like, this guy sued a company out of business. He's got billions of dollars. He's all kinds of things at his disposal. And if you want me to imagine that he, and he gets to speak up, he gets to give speeches, he gets to, you know what I mean? And he's still a victim. He is Well, let me ask you something, Kara. In terms of like a a policy discussion, do Mm -hmm. you believe that in certain circles that a conservative point of view is, is actually heard at all? And there can be an open conversation with people of differing opinions. I think, 
some places are conservative and some places aren't. I can't operate in certain parts of the country either, like in certain companies. It's just companies have their point of view. And I think the reason a lot of these companies pretend they don't is because when you have to say your values, you have to argue about them, right? Mm-hmm. You, uh, values are what you argue about. But when you have—I had this really interesting time at YouTube. I went there to talk to them, and I, they were talking about how it used to be all squirrel videos and nice things, and now they have a college ethical debate every day, you know, whether it's Logan Paul or whatever. Um, right. And, and on some level, I'm like, well, that's the way, that's what it's about having values. You have to state your values. And I don't think that they, they can, they, they, I'm, I'm having an interest, I'm going to have a pie as a guy who's doing all these polls on conservatives. They don't get to talk. It isn't a, a, it is a liberal environment. It is. It just is. These companies are more tolerant. Tech has been more tolerant. And these are their values. And so I don't know if you can't talk, because I don't think that's, I, I'm sorry, these people have so many opportunities to talk. At Google, there's like 900 uh, places to talk and all kinds of opportunities. But I think once you say something that's not in their value system, maybe it's not a place you need to work, mm-hmm. or maybe you should work somewhere else. Or, you know, I think that's been. Uh, for, I mean, as a gay person, you couldn't be gay. Like, you couldn't. And that, of course, that ended up being illegal in some places. It's still not that illegal in many places. Um, but I just think you have to think about what values you have. And if you have those values, not being cowed into saying you have to have everyone's point of view. This, this is our value. This is what we, you know, every internet company has a little statement of who they are. Um, and I think they're scared about that. They're scared about stating them. Yeah, that's interesting. But I also think that there are some issues that respectable, intelligent, well-meaning people can can disagree. And I do, you know, I wonder about our inability to have a respectful conversation about maybe, you know, certain things are non-negotiable. I understand that. But certain things that you can have a different point of view right. and you can learn from somebody and they can say, you know, uh, this is how I feel about this. And I feel like those conversations aren't happening and it really bums me out. And I think well, it's really it's damaging it's so the country. Yes, it's so politicized. But maybe I was just thinking the other day, some other point of view came out and I was like, I'm so glad to hear this point of view. Like, now I know. Like, I, people are like, I can't believe people are like this. I think they've always been like this. They just have an outlet. And especially social media amplifies and weaponizes a lot of right. it, you know. And I, 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 when I think about it, I'm like, well, okay, now I can see it. It's out in broad daylight. I understand the ignorance or whatever I think of whatever the point of view is. Uh, most, most, many of them I find ignorant. But, but some, you, so, know, you know, you can't really persuade somebody if you're not— talking to them. There's a really good book that's written by the incoming president of the University of Virginia, Jim Ryan. It's called Wait, What? Mm-hmm. And in, he gave a great graduation speech at, at the Harvard School of Education. And it's mm-hmm. basically, we've lost our ability to be even a tiny bit circumspect. You know, we, we, we have these instantaneous reactions. Mm-hmm. And sometimes just to take a moment and say, wait, what? And he, anyway, it's very interesting to the the way we hear things, the way we react to things, the way that we are in our own echo chambers, the way that we we are preaching to the choir, especially on social media and Twitter. That some I just wish once in a while we could all say, "Wait, what?" 
and then hear each other a little bit. Not on everything, Kara, but on something. No, no, but I'm going to push back on it in a very big way because I do think we're hearing each other. That's the problem. Do you? I'm just, yes, because I'm reading reading the actual book on Hamilton, not the musical, which I really much enjoyed. Oh, the David Chernoff? Ron Chernoff. Ron Chernoff. If you read that book, the stuff that was going on between Hamilton, Jefferson, Madison, and Washington— Not to mention Aaron Burr. Yeah, exactly, who— created a problem at the end. But um, it was really quite the same. Like, it is even worse. Like, the kind of, like, in our democracy, hung by a thread so many times, the Whiskey Rebellion, the XYZ affair, we we have no sense of history is Mm -hmm. what it is. And if you read that, you're like, oh, my God. Oh, my, like, you you realize how, and the the invective was so vicious through these different newspaper articles they wrote against each other. There was an act, the Sedition Act, if people don't remember it, like, that you— People went to jail for having a Republican point of view if they if they insulted the government, and that was law in the books for a very long time. Um, that that if you insulted the government, you were jailed. So people who were not in the of the Adams group, the Federalists, were put in jail for years, and their lives were changed. And so I think this has been an American problem for years: is the lack of ability to have any memory, mm-hmm. and at the same time realize that we have always been like that. You know what I mean? And then social media, and what's happened is Trump has just uh, under uh, given voice to all of it. Now we see it instantly, and that's what's discomforting about it. Um, but we don't—this is not something—go read that book, because then I, yeah. I, I sort of felt a little better. I was like, oh, wow, we've been doing this for centuries. We're on the cusp of anarchy at every single second. Um, you think I'll the same read thing that with and you read and Wait Salem, What. Which, all right, I'll read Wait What. Because I, I think it's not, I think social media has made it worse and that these companies have a responsibility. And I'll, I'll, we'll end on that because one of the things, when you were talking about how do I get liked, disliked, I what I think happens, and I think the reason you're successful is because we just, I, I, I hate to like have something in common with Donald Trump, but you say it like it, like it is for you. And I think people do appreciate that. Whether they disagree with you or don't agree with you, if you have a cogent, point of view and you're genuine, these mediums, you thrive in them. You I guess, you know, I, I, I'm still quite careful. I mean, I think that you are sort of, you know, care bar the door. I'm a little mm-hmm. more uh, careful about some of the things I put out there in the world because I don't know, you know, I want to get the I don't care gene from you somehow mm-hmm. because I still, I have that Want that desire to be liked, which is, yeah. Um, yeah, you know, you I, I have it cute. less as I've gotten older, but I still have What's it. And 70, you're going to say, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> what? When is it? When? You, when? What age are you going to do that at? Well, I'm I'm starting to say, uh, yeah. not, not F you, but. <laughs> oh, it's so sweet. Shut up. <laughs> hush you. Get out now of hush here. Now. Get, Get out, out of here. Down. Come on. Bite me. That's about as far as I go. I do oh say my bite God. me. But I don't. Yeah, but I, I think, I, I do think you get an enormous amount of criticism that are, I can't imagine having. Like, I was thinking there was a story about Lena Dunham in Vanity Fair oh, about gosh, the same thing. Yeah. Like that. Lena. Well, every t- really? I mean. I love but Lena this Dunham. But this I'm is, this is the world we live in. And I think. Right. I think you can you can say nothing and stand for nothing, or you mm-hmm. can, you know, say when you feel strongly about things. You know, I've been pretty open about saying we have to have a conversation about sensible gun laws. It is insanity. Right. It is mm-hmm. insanity. And no, it's not a panacea. No, it will never prevent gun violence, but it can reduce it. And it has to be a multi-pronged approach. I agree mental illness is a part of it, but it's a, you know, easy access to firearms is really 
a horrific thing. And I've, I've been pretty vocal about that. Mm-hmm. Well, so what's your next fit? You, you've done, you got me to have a col- have my colon. I'm, I'm actually obviously. taking a, a well-known person to get screened in March. I'm not going to tell <laughs> oh, no. you who. Oh, no. But I'm going to escort this individual. Oprah. I am not going, no. I am not going to actually <laughs> perform the colonoscopy <laughs> because I'm not, right. I'm not qualified, but I'm going to be sort of the escort, which will be fun because, you know, it's such a preventable disease. And, I, I, you know, nothing feels Katie, better to me. To I mean, if it. you talk about anything I've done in my life, when people come up to me, Karen, say, you know what? I got screened for colon cancer because of you, and that screening saved my life. Wow. I mean, that makes me that, feel like I'm walking on a cloud. So I I, I have the colon of a 20-year-old, just in case. Do you? <laughs> Mazel. <laughs> Mazel. Clean. Clean. Clean living, Katie. Have you, when was um, your last colon? Well, you're not—how old are you now? I'm old, 54. Okay, so how many? Yeah. You've had one colonoscopy? One, yes. I'm going to have one next year. Okay, Five good. years, right? Five years? And and and, and really— Five tell, years. Can you yeah, tell me? Yeah, every five years. Yeah, Kirk, tell every— thank you. Well, depending on what they find. They found yeah. a McDonald's cheeseburger when I did mine. Uh, you didn't take the pills? No, no I'm kidding. Um, no, I will take take them. But I want to end on one thing. So you, where, where do you imagine you're going to do next? I mean, obviously you're talking about Instagram, which I think is really interesting. But what, and then I will tell you what I'm going to do next. But what, uh, if you want to know. Um, I do want to know. Of course I want to uh, know. What, what, what do you imagine if you could like design a career right now? Like you're doing these documentaries, you're doing all kinds of things. What do you, what would be the most interesting way? Still storytelling. I mean, I storytelling. I do love talking to interesting people. I like understanding sort of where they came from, how they got there. I love learning all the time. I'm sort of insatiably curious. So I think I don't know exactly. I, I need some career advice from you, Kara, because I think I, you should interview. I also I think like, you should interview. I, I also like being connected to an audience or to people. I like feeling that that I have th- that, base, that, yeah. the access to people that I can make them f- more I can make complicated subjects more understandable or that I can introduce them to something that they're not aware of that will improve their lives or that will just make their day more interesting. I like being sort of that conduit for mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. And and I think, I think I have a pretty good sensibility about things. I think I've got a nose for news, as they say. I think mm-hmm. I know I can sense when something is going to kind of be in the ethos. So – I don't know exactly, but I just want to keep learning and discovering. And that sounds so cheesy and weird, but you know, I I just enjoy being engaged, and I like to take people along for That's the so ride. That's cheesy, and you should do interviews. I'm just telling you, not just because this one. I mean, I, I, what, what do you imagine your greatest interview was? I think my most one. impactful, which really isn't a word, but now I think it is a word because mm-hmm. it's used so much. I think it's probably was Sarah Palin. That was a hell of an interview. Oh well, you know it it it. Having nothing to do with me, I just, I think I basically went there with with questions that required critical thinking and accumulated knowledge. And I think I was very careful about asking them in a non-confrontational way. You did. And as a result, I think it exposed a lot about her. And I think that was very helpful for voters. Yeah, you you took a photograph. You know what I mean? And that's, you couldn't More like an x-ray. Yeah, you did, and you couldn't deny it. It was like, okay, I see. You know what I mean? It was really interesting. But, I, you know, I I feel like I've done a lot of pretty good interviews, like this one, for example. Oh, this one. <laughs> anyway, Katie. <laughs> oh, wait. Do you, oh, okay, wait. Well, hold on a second. Question. I have one more question. question. Hold go. on. All right. Okay, this is from Gianna, my producer. All right. What muscles and skills do you think entrepreneurship draws upon oh, compared to journalism? 
Um, Katie, I think being irritating is, I think, the most important muscle skill that anyone has to have. Being irritating? Irritating. Being irritable and irritating and not being, looking at something and saying, why is this done this way? Uh I think every great entrepreneur from Steve Jobs to to, to, down to today, lots of great entrepreneurs are, every one of them is irritating and irritated. And so they see something and they want to, they don't, they don't let anything stop them from doing it. And I think it's really hard. I think agreeable people don't invent things. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I think the most important uh, word probably in an entrepreneur's uh, uh, vocabulary is why. Why, yeah. Yeah. Or maybe why not? Why not? It's, it's more like, I don't like this. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. And I think our greatest, you know, this will be from very difficult people. Anyway, Katie, thank you so this much. This was so this fun. Totally, Are you call just, me when you come to New York I, so we can hang out? Thank you so much. And by the and way, I wanted for, to ask you, you're thinking what, about yeah. running for mayor of San Francisco, oh, right? you got a million questions, Katie. We'll have to do In part two of this thing. In 2023. Maybe. We'll see. I've decided perhaps I might aim even higher. Katie. Really? Are you going to run for yeah. president? No, no, no. That would be a disaster. Senator? Oh, what am I, governor? What am I talking about? You would be great. Be Can I be your um, your press secretary? Oh, my God. We would just go down in flames. It would be so good. <laughs> hey, it <laughs> sounds like a sitcom, doesn't it? It does. It does. Let's write it. Let's okay. do that. <laughs> That's a wrap for us today. Thanks to our producer, Gianna Palmer, our audio engineer, Jared O'Connell, and our assistant producer, Nora Ritchie. A big thank you to Emily Bina of Katie Couric Media, to my assistant, Beth DeMoss, and to Allison Bresnick, who tears it up on social media. You know, we're going to run out of these things after a while. (laughs) Anyway, our theme music, you ask? Mark Phillips wrote it. Katie and I are the show's executive producers, and Cody Scully is our terrific engineer here in L.A. And here's your weekly reminder that you can drop us a line at comments at currentpodcast.com or at 929-224-4637. We really do value your feedback and your guest ideas as well. Meanwhile, you can find me on social media under Katie Couric, how original. And you can find me on Twitter at GoldsmithB. We'll be back next week with the final installment in our da-da-da-da Wonder Women series, where we'll be talking with DVF herself. That is right, people. Fashion icon Dionne von Furstenberg will be joining our show. Did you know she's also a former princess or maybe a current princess? Once a princess, always a princess. Anyway, get excited, everyone. And by all means, call in with your questions. Our voicemail line, once again, 929-224-4637. Thanks for listening, and we will talk to you next week. What's up? I'm Will Fulton from Thrillist with some amazing podcast news. We just launched our very first podcast, Thrillist Best and the Rest. Every week, you can hear me and my amazingly talented colleagues talk about the best of the best in food, drink, travel, and entertainment. From the scariest movie of all time to the best hangover cure ever, listen to Thrillist Best and the Rest on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, you know, basically everywhere and anywhere you can find podcasts.